Blue Roads Education Group. I'm Patty Talbot. At Blue Roads, we capitalize on the strengths of local communities by engaging tradition with diversity and opportunity. We encourage innovation across sectors and work with leaders to cultivate homegrown changemakers for a better world. I'm excited to share another episode in our Changemaker interview series that uses the questions embodied in our slogan, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World, to guide our conversation. In this way, we can learn how changemakers engage their roots and family origins, as well as opportunities to engage with individuals different from themselves to seek creative approaches to the world's most challenging issues. We hope you will enjoy this opportunity to listen, learn, and change with us. pleased today to be chatting with my changemaker friend, Leif Seligman, and you will be so excited to hear from her and her story and the things she's doing in the world, and she's an amazing author and an amazing human that I had the privilege of meeting last fall at the River Phoenix Peace Building Institute, and I was just blown away, as I know you will be also. Welcome, Leif. I appreciate you being here. I'm happy to be here. That was a big build-up, though, so I hope I <laughs> Oh, I should have done a lot more than that. I'm just trying to be, trying to be brief. Uh, so as we discussed before, I'm wanting to have a conversation with you about your story as a changemaker. And I'm framing the questions around our Blue Road slogan, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World. So I will start with the homegrown piece and just ask you to tell us about where you were grown and who are your people and, and those people influence you in your life as a changemaker. Well, I am homegrown in, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, or really in Brentwood, which is eight miles south of Nashville. And I'm 61, so we give a little historical perspective. So I grew up, my childhood would have been, you know, really the 60s. And so for me, absolutely in terms of what informs me as a change maker or as a human being, growing up in really the tail end of the Jim Crow South in the civil rights era was profoundly important to, that was the air that I breathed. The other air that I breathed is that wonderful line of Flannery O'Connor's of the Christ Haunted South. I think that I really felt that sense of haunting. So I grew up in a Reform Jewish home. It was very progressive politically and um, religiously. Again, we were Reform, so a fairly assimilated kind of life. How that affected me, though, is I grew up in this um, in this community where I went to a, a very fancy private school where my brother was the first Jewish student, and I guess there was one other Jewish family. And I encountered there certainly the fact that uh, it was really kind of a waspy white flight school. So I had very early lessons in what racism and systemic racism looked like, how it played out. Because of the family I grew up in, I was really aware that in the school that I went to, the, everyone was white except the two custodians who were referred to as Willie and Bill. 
and every other adult in the school, probably even the white lunch ladies were Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. Mm -hmm. And that was a really early lesson. So I grew up in the era where in fifth grade, my dad brought me the memoir of Coretta Scott King. And I was so excited. It tells you something that I was a fifth grader who was excited to have the memoir of Coretta Scott King. And I read it and I wanted to give my oral book report on that book. And my very lovely homeroom teacher, who is the wife of a young Episcopal priest, pulled me aside and said, you may give that oral book report to me privately at my desk. Two years before, when I was in third grade, which I believe would have been maybe 1967 or 8, I wanted to do a report on Martin Luther King Jr. because our third grade class had the privilege to give the assembly for the whole school, it was K through 8, and the teacher picked six students in her third grade class that were, I guess, fairly articulate, and she invited us to write a report on our favorite famous person, and then we would get to at the school assembly, stand up, and, you know, read our report. Now, I instantly said, well, I want to do my report on Martin Luther King Jr. because he was absolutely my hero. And I can't remember, I'm trying to think, I think it might have been he was still alive at the time. I think he was. I think he died maybe later that year, the next year. And so there was this young girl in the class who said right away, we were standing right by the third grade teacher because she asked now, you know, Martha, who would you like to do? And she said something like Thomas Jefferson and I said Martin Luther King, and this little girl said, well, if Leaf does a report on that communist nigger riot maker, my Ooh. father will pull me out of this school so fast you won't believe it, and he's the vice president of such and such a bank, and he's on the board of the school. And I just looked at this kid, and I was blown out, one, by the use of the N-word, and also, like, he wasn't a communist, and he wasn't a riot maker. And I thought, okay, well, she can't help herself. She's grown up around a family that is ignorant, despite the fact that, of course, her father was, in fact, a vice president of a bank. So they were educated, ignorant people. <laughs> but I thought, for sure, the teacher will see the inherent injustice of her remarks. And my third grade teacher, who is a lovely woman, older woman, older now, probably my age, <laughs> you know, when you're eight or nine, with his folks, said, well, Leif, I think it would be better for both you and the school if you choose someone else. And I would say that might have been the birth of the change maker. Uh -huh. This little eight or nine-year-old thought, it's one thing for an ignorant kid, but how could you, reasonable adult, betray me like that? Like, I just was flabbergasted. And I mean, really, the, the coda of the story is just I picked Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, the cartoon. Uh -huh. And the morning of the assembly, I was, I was sick to my stomach. Quite literally, I mean, we know now how emotions work. I, I was sick to my stomach. I didn't go to school. And I know I was sick to my stomach because I knew it wasn't right. I mean, Charles Schultz is a wonderful guy, yeah. but he was not Martin Luther King. So I would say that, you know, I had a lot of stories like that. So I encountered, you know, I encountered anti-Semitism and I certainly saw the racism all around me. And I think that, that instilled a sense, if you'd asked me as a small child, what my understanding of God was, I think I would have said justice. Because I think just growing up in the soil of such profound injustice, God must be, a, must be the response to this profound injustice everywhere. So that's a little bit about, you know, I mean, certainly, like I said, I grew up in a, in a kind of certainly in an affluent way. And a mile or two miles from me, the African-American folks lived in 
tar paper shacks without yeah. plumbing. And I knew that and I knew them and we traveled those roads. And so the contrast was really big for me. Father, as a young attorney, was uh, on the board of Goodwill Industries, so we were aware of that. My mother was a juvenile probation officer for a time when I was fairly young, probably seven or eight. And she yeah. would bring girls home from juvenile hall overnight. And so I, again, I was exposed to, gee, there are kids who have horrible lives or swallowing spoons to get themselves out of juvenile detention centers. And so as a young kid, I was aware of that. My father was, again, quite progressive. And during the Vietnam War, he was helping folks get conscientious objector status and get or get to Canada. Before Roe v. Wade in the early 70s, he was helping women get safely to New York if they needed to terminate a pregnancy. And I knew that. I mean, we talked about these issues in our home. I grew up as a kid who was really aware of current events, um, politics. I think what informed me as, as a very young child was a sense of outsiderness that I felt quite like an outsider. Um, part of that was feeling like I was a boy. I was supposed to be a boy and I wasn't a girl body. Part of it was that we were reformed Jews, but my cousins, my father had one sister, my aunt, and she and her four children and her husband were conservative Jews. So they were observant. So we had the Christmas tree and ate BLT sandwiches. And so there was just this sort of sense of differentness that no matter what I was, I didn't, I didn't quite fit. And really what I think that did is it made me interested in other people who didn't quite fit. And it made me think about who else is invisible. When I was 12, my mother took me to a play at the state prison. And I, I mean, again, how many 12-year-olds are enraptured by a play at the men's prison? But I was. And so, I, and I had that kind of family that my mother would think to say, hey, the, some of the men in the prison are putting on a play. Would you like to go? Mm-hmm. I was that kind of kid who said, yes. Moving into that solutions kind of quadrant, thinking about yourself maybe on the younger part of your life and you were starting clearly to have this sense of injustice in the world and you were having conversations about it. How did you, or what did you choose to work on as soon as you felt like you had the wherewithal to, to do anything or, or talk about it or take action on things? Were there, were there things early on that you felt like you could do? One thing I did as a child, as I wrote, that was a, which certainly has become a way for me to put my voice in the world. And I did start writing as a child. And the very first short story I remember writing had to do with racism, you know, and injustice. So yeah. that was a voice. I was a pretty loudmouth kid in that private school. I mean, I got shut down in third grade, but in seventh grade, I wrote a long paper about comparing the, the Boston massacre with the shootings at Kent State. And I luckily had yeah. a progressive young history teacher who let me do that. That was not the kind of paper students wrote in that school. And I would say mostly what I did is I, I didn't, I didn't have any solutions yet. I just tried to pay attention to the world and Mm -hmm. I started reading a lot more and trying to speak up some, but I can't think of anything. Well, actually I can, that's, I, I take it back. I started writing letters to the editor to the local, to the Nashville Tennessean or the Nashville Banner. We had a morning and an evening paper. And I became quite a serious letter writer. And they had a, I think it was the Nashville Tennessean. I could be wrong, but they had a deal where if you got a, if you wrote a really good letter to the editor, they gave it three stars. And then at the end of the year, they invited their three star letter winners, letter writers who won 
to a banquet. And the year I won was 1970, must have been 76, because Mo Udall was running for president and he was the keynote speaker. And I wrote about pretty heavy duty issues. So I remember I wrote about um, prison reform. I wrote about drunk driving. I wrote about homophobia before we had that word, but I certainly right. remember that. And, you know, the issues were in the paper and my name and address was in the paper. And sometimes people wrote back and wrote to me personally. And often it was very lovely. And sometimes it was a little weird. So my mom yeah. was like, why did they publish your address in the newspaper? That seems a little dangerous. But that really actually was yeah. probably the first place where I thought I have to speak up. And I do write. I mean, I wasn't a brilliant writer at 15 or 16, but I was good enough. Uh-huh. So that really felt like the first taste of, oh, okay, I need to, to make a difference by speaking up, by trying to articulate some of the injustices I see. When did you start having opportunities to actually interact with people more different from yourself, not the people you ran into at the private school, which were, of course, different from you religiously and so forth, too? The fact that I was raised, you know, as a kid, in the, a white kid in the South, from the time I was tiny, there were women women of color in the house who cared for me. There were, we were, my family, especially my mother was very, very close with a, a man, an African-American man, and his family lived a couple of miles away in the shack without, well, I think they actually probably had some electricity. They did not have plumbing. So I knew those families. And so it was clear to me really from the time I was three in the arms of a brown woman who I, if I have an image of Mother Mary, the, the mother of God, it, I always talk about Sarah Cunningham as um, Mother Mary Sarah, Sarah Cunningham, because I really imagine if there is such a figure, that was her. She embodied um, that great maternal God love. And so I was always around people who are different. So when I was 13, I spent a summer as a kind of junior counselor at a camp for children who are blind and visually impaired. When I was 15, it was a camp for children who were deaf and had hearing impairment or hearing loss. So, and, and again, there were vast differences in terms of class and, well, I'd say class and color as well. Um, So I certainly, so that was part of what was interesting about my upbringing is yes, I went to school with the white children of doctors and lawyers and business people and professionals. And, and I went to that world knowing I wasn't that I was a spy, but I understood that I was, I think of myself as someone who translates the metaphors that I have transgressed and, and transcended boundaries in my life quite a lot. And I have moved sort of across the borders of different kinds of people and subgroups. And, and I think that really did start in childhood. And I think, I don't mean this in a self-aggrandizing way. I just think I was wired to be attuned to those things, Mm -hmm. to notice in a way that other people are gifted with wonderful musical talent, which I was not, but I was gifted with the capacity to really pay attention to what was going on and be curious, even as a kid, which is why I wrote about, so what is the life of this 12-year-old girl that my mother brought home from juvenile court? Mm -hmm. What is the life of this person who has... Um, developmental disabilities. What is it like for those kids who live in on Hard Hard Scuffle Road? What a great name, Hard Scuffle Road. You know, what's it like to live in a tar paper shack? And when it's cold in the winter, even in Tennessee, it gets cold in the winter, and you have to go outside to do your business in the outhouse. And mm-hmm. you know, when when the friend of the the gentleman I referenced, the African American man, he had four children, and his daughter got pregnant at sixteen. 
I was always thinking about, wow, what, what are other lives like? And what are the conditions that create those lives? Mm-hmm. So I just think that that was just, um, that feels like a big part of what informed whatever path I'm on. My family also invited people of different cultures and from different countries. They entertained all the time. And so they would bring people who might be visiting from universities or whatever. So it just felt like, despite the fact that I was primarily surrounded by white upper middle class Protestant Mm -hmm. people, very clearly got, oh, they are not the world. They simply think they're in charge of the world. In your nature and your upbringing, you were wired very early on uh, to relate to people different from yourself. Wondering if there are places in your life that you have found talking across difference more challenging. I can go into a prison and I've volunteered and taught and led programs in prison, you know, off and on over 30 years. And I can identify with people who've done hideous things. You know, I've sat with people who've committed murder and who've committed rape and everything in between. And I can find the spark of the divine in them. But boy, listening to some of these impeachment hearings early on in the work with the prison, my challenge was to find myself in the correctional officers. Correctional officers are not a monolithic group, but I might go into the employee parking lot and see bumper stickers, politically extremely conservative and hold views really different than my own. I had to find, I was like, can I find myself in that person? Mm -hmm. And so for me, yes. If you said, where would the hardest conversations be? Certainly to some degree across political lines Although I think the larger issue wouldn't necessarily be someone just maybe who votes differently than me, because I can understand that we might share a common value and have a different strategy or believe that this policy is a better way to address that. So right. if I want educational equity. I might think it looks like this and you might think it looks like that. But what we, what we both want is for all children to get a high quality education. I right. think where I really struggle the most is with people who may appear not to care or aren't able to be Mm self-reflective and think about what is it in my story that informs my perspective Mm -hmm. people who might not be curious i think i think that's the much harder part i mean i have been able to have political conversation the three friends i have who i know voted for mr trump in 2016 Mm -hmm. you know they're all bright interesting people and we're friends and i care about them so even though we have political differences, but I know they care greatly about the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think I have a harder time maybe with folks who would say, like, I, I can understand hunting, although it's not in my value system. I get that people do it. So, but I think about the hunters I know who would say, well, yes, of course, there's a moment that's, that pains me when I stop a life to feed my family. Right. It's the person who might say, well, why would it bother me to go shoot an animal? It's just a thing. That's where I'd have trouble. When I meet people who might be, in quotes, politically really progressive, but if they sort of sanctify conservative Republicans or evangelical Christians or any other group, that's just as offensive. It's like, whoa, how do I, how do I make a bridge? Right. Because for me, everybody is my spiritual kin mm-hmm. and as we all know, who have families, we don't necessarily, we don't always like our cousins, but they're our cousins. And yeah. that's how I feel like I have 
everybody, I'm connected to everybody. It doesn't mean yeah. I love everybody. Yeah. And it, it also means that I, the minute I just sort of disparage or say that that being is, is, has no worth, whether it's a tree being or an animal or a human being or the river. Yeah. Then I'm guilty of what I don't want to be part of, which is to, you know what I mean? To devalue another being. I'm hoping what I do by being curious is I invite reflection. If you can move on to your more recent and current work, what are you working on? Why is it important to you? And why do you think it's important to the world? For me, it feels like in large measure, my, my calling or my life work really is redemption. And I define that as freedom from detriment. So anything I can do to facilitate or create space for or make a container for that to happen, for people to be freed from harm, which is detriment, that's the work. So the shape that it takes might vary. So um, obviously you alluded to the book that I wrote, which for me, while I'm proud of it, is a piece of some good, hopefully literary fiction. It really is as much important to me that it's a tool for engagement, that it's a meaningful way to engage people in conversation around issues of how we other each other, how we, you know, make each other other or marginalize each other or, or exclusive of one another, how we exploit, how we harm, how we don't see. So that feels like a piece of the work. The other sort of focus of my life has been teaching. I certainly think about that as, as a kind of activism in the context of teaching a first year required course in critical thinking and writing research, you know, preparing first year students to write a research essay where I could pick the content of the course. I've always done that with great deliberateness. So when I first started teaching the course, I talked about religious pluralism in a global age. I talked about how we learn because I really wanted students to deconstruct their own education and become critical thinkers about how we educate or fail to educate or miseducate students. I taught a section on the downside of certainty because I wanted students to really step back and go, there are some downsides to being so sure we're right. I did a section on consumerism and the story of stuff and how overconsumption is destroying Mm -hmm. the planet. I did a course on forgiveness and reconciliation and restorative justice for several years. So for me, that was, there was a real intention mm-hmm. to try to use the platform of a classroom, not to inculcate my beliefs, but, but to absolutely invite and encourage students to think really critically, to really dig deeply into their own life and their own story and what informs their beliefs and their thinking. So, so teaching feels like an area of it. The other piece has been restorative justice work, restorative practices. And for me, what that's meant is to get some training in, in circle practice in particular uh, and to attend national conferences on restorative justice and attend lots of sessions and read as widely as and deeply as I can on that so that I do feel like now I legitimately am a, can be and am a restorative practices practitioner, circle keeping work. And the way that manifests sort of on a daily basis, if you said, well, how in your community would we see evidence of that? I started with two other women, a diversion, an adult diversion program. After I, I worked for a couple of years in a local juvenile court diversion program. So that also felt to me like a, it felt like a, in a way, a kind of change makery role, because when I stepped into the process, it, there was certainly a, 
a kind of whiff of restorative justice that informed it, but it, the juvenile diversion program used kind of panels and, you know, the kid who'd gotten in trouble sat and then there these adults sit on the other side of the table. And I was like, no, 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 no. Circle process, restorative justice, circle up, you know? So I feel like that was a way that I could impart those values and, and make change in my community that way. So having done that, then I realized there's no adult diversion program for people who've committed fairly minor offenses. So a couple of women who had taken an an adult learning and retirement course that I taught on restorative justice, we got together and started working with the county attorney and the police and, you know, to build a program, which we did. We haven't really gotten referrals, but from that, the county commissioners, so I'm in, I'm in a rural state in New Hampshire and I, I'm in a rural county and we have three commissioners and a county administrator and they're very interested in restorative justice. So we've been meeting now for probably a year and continue to move closer to, and now I think we're meeting actually in another week or so, 10 days, uh, to talk about there might be some budget available to have some restorative practices within the context of the criminal justice system here. The other places I've approached as many schools as I can, I've had conversations now, I think, with five elementary and middle school principals, one senior high principal, and, you know, and I keep circling back. I wish I could tell you that, oh, boy, I've been just consulting with all of them. But I've been, you know, I mean, that's the work I do in the world as I go and I say, I'm available as a resource. What's going on in your school? What are the challenges? And then I try to be curious and then offer back and say, here's some things that might help. I belong to a conversation on race in my community. Mm-hmm. So I do that. I'm part, I'm starting next week. I'm going to a meeting, a new statewide um, it's not really a coalition, but it's a statewide initiative on race and equity. Mm-hmm. And they're developing an action plan. So hopefully it won't just be more good-hearted people talking. A few years ago, I s- helped start a nonprofit that the goal of which at the time was to create a healing house for women coming out of the local jail. We didn't bring that to fruition because I realized early on that takes a lot of organizational capacity to do that. But what we did end up doing is we created a mentorship program for women as they were coming out of the jail. So we ran that, we ran that program and the nonprofit was in existence for about three years. And then we sort of disbanded it. Just trying to be of use where my hands are. So in my community, I would say it's largely around, you know, the idea of redemption. So I've been on quite a few committees or task forces or whatever around behavioral health. People seem to, mm-hmm. that, it's sort of like who invites me to their table. So behavioral right. health, substance misuse, and yeah. that, that, had, that kind of was an outgrowth of the nonprofit. I guess I believe in ground up solution, you know, from mm-hmm. the ground up, so mm-hmm. from the inside. So I'm always saying to teachers when they'll say, well, yes, this is nice in theory, Leaf, but if I have 25 pupils, you know, 25 kids in the classroom in my fourth grade classroom and somebody's acting out and I'm trying to realize that the person is really asking for help and I need to be curious about the child's unmet need in that moment. But I've got 24 other kids. What do I do with them? And I always say, why don't you circle them up with the child who's needing some help? Mm-hmm. Why don't you tap the wisdom in the room? They might mm-hmm. be eight. That does not mm-hmm. mean they're not full of wisdom. They have more right. wisdom in their bodies because they haven't had it all drained out yet. And so... Yeah. I think that's the thing I realize about solutions is I don't want to be the very person I'm critiquing. I don't want to come in and go, oh, I have the solution for you. If you just had a little restorative practice, your school would run better. Far be it for me to say it. What I can do is say, let me invite you into thinking about this. Mm-hmm. 
let's go back to your own childhood. Let's go back to your own experiences. What made you want to become an educator and what's it like now? Because most of the people I meet who are teachers and administrators say, wow, you know, when I was in school, uh, I had this wonderful notion of I was going to help children and be that wonderful teacher like I had. And gosh, now it's a struggle and it's not like that. And we don't have time to do whatever because we, ha- we have to teach the test or we have to do whatever. And so I, I, I want to be really thoughtful about solutions and who do they belong to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've been reading this book. I do just want to say this because it goes super relevant to the conversation. I'm reading this wonderful book, Winners Take All. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. And one mm-hmm. of the things that the writer is focusing on is that he's really talking about the people who consider themselves, he calls it market world, but the kind of plutocratic class of people who are trying to change the world. They mean well. They're trying to change mm-hmm. the world. and They're going to solve poverty and education and, and solve is their word. Mm-hmm. And he said they love to talk about solving poverty because they have lots of money they can throw at it. And what they don't like to talk about is dismantling inequity. Yes. Dismantle inequity then the systems that have allowed them to become billionaires mm-hmm. won't be intact. And so they're not going to critique. They're not going to have that critique because it would dismantle their lives and their livelihood. Right. And so when I think about solutions, I want to not fall into the camp of well-meaning privileged people who come in on a white horse. Mm-hmm. Can I help, help you listen more carefully for the solutions that you need to come up with for your school that belong to you? But the kids have to be at the table.